namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami So continuing with uh, this last of the five talks on dependent origination, this one's called Letting Go of Desire from the uh, uh, Ajahn Sumato Anthology. Uh, These are all talks given during the winter retreat of 1988. So we were uh, talking about uh, Paticca Samupada and particularly about uh, desire and uh, specifically about identifying with the body. Then, of course, there are all the views, feelings, memories, and biases we have. Vedana, sanya, sankara. We suffer not only from identification with the body, but also when we attach to the, uh, to the beautiful and to feelings. I want only the beautiful. I want only the pleasant. I don't want to see the ugly. I want to have beautiful music and no ugly sounds, only fragrant smells. We attach to what the world should be like. Opinions about Britain, France, the USA. Attachments to these views, opinions and perceptions make up the Vedana, Sanya, Sankara sequence of the five khandas. And we can attach to all that in terms of self. It's my view, what I think and what I want and I don't want, what should be and what shouldn't be. And from that illusion of self come grief, anguish, despair, depression, sorrow and lamentation. The insight into the second noble truth is that there is an origin to this suffering. It's not permanent. It's not absolutely always that something arises. The rising of dukkha is due to the grasping of desire. You can see desire because it is a dhamma. It arises and ceases. You can see the desire that arises to seek the beautiful and pleasant on the sensual plane through eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. Karma tanha is sensual desire. Sensual desire always wants some kind of pleasurable or at least exciting experience. Karma tanha. You can see it in our movement of going towards and then grasping the sensory pleasures. So particularly with relationship um, to very, and very visible, uh, very uh, obvious or tangible with, uh, with karma tanha or the desire for sense pleasure, is that, um, and it's it's kind of related to the the way we tell ourselves stories, the kind of narrative that we we give. We say, I I always like this, or I always want, uh, I always want to go and see new places, or I, I always like cake, or I always like uh, um, the um, the sunny weather. And we use this kind of language uh, very, very regularly. And um, we tell ourselves those stories. And 
Uh, and it might be that it's common for us to like a particular flavor or a particular sound, the music of, of the chanting or, or Bach or uh, whatever it might be. So we, we say, oh, I, I like that. I, uh, that's, that's my favorite. I, um, I, I want such and such. And when we talk in those ways, we, in a way, are not looking at the way that desire works uh, in and of itself. And particularly during the meditation, the, the, one of the most helpful uh, insights that we can have is say that you're sitting here in the temple or wherever you're sitting meditating or doing walking meditation, and then the um, the feeling arises. Uh, you know, uh, I'm hungry. I really want I really want something to eat, or I, I could really use a cup of tea. I really want a cup of tea, and in that moment, it feels like you are lacking that. That uh, there is. Some some food uh, would would make you happy, or a cup of tea would make you happy. And in that framework, we're we're believing that story that the the the, uh, the mind says that uh, I am this being that is lacking a cup of tea or something to eat or or um, uh, or whatever it might be. And we believe that that story, uh, but it's basically it's a lie. And if you notice, and it's particularly uh, say visible or, or easy to see in periods of sitting meditation, walking meditation, that a desire might rise up, like, oh, I really would like a cup of tea. And then five minutes go by and your mind has either gone back to the meditation object or that you've been distracted by something else and that desire for a cup of tea has ended. It's not there. And so that when you had that feeling, oh, I would really like a cup of tea or I'd really like something to eat, then... You believe there's something missing at that moment. At least that's how my mind works. And if you had that missing piece, the the the, the tea or the food or the, whatever it might be, uh, then you would be happy. That's the the dynamic of it. If I just had that missing piece, then the the circle would be complete. But it's it's not true. And so what what happens is that some time goes by, the the desire comes to an end, or the mind gets distracted, and then you realize I didn't get the cup of tea. And nothing is missing. I didn't. I didn't have that that, that food. I didn't. I didn't go up and go for a walk. Or you might feel like, oh, I really want to go for a walk, and you realise you didn't get up. You didn't go for a walk, and nothing is missing. Um, uh, I uh, acknowledge that different people's minds work in different ways, but generally, this this is how it is for us. So that to me, that's a really useful insight because it's telling you that. The desire was it was essentially lying or giving you a, a coming up with a half truth, and it wasn't as though your life was complete or the universe was missing something when you didn't have that cup of tea or that that food to eat or that walk. It was just saying in this moment there's this feeling of of uh, this would be a this would be nice or this is attractive, but when it, uh, the, the key insight is that the desire comes to an end and nothing is missing. That uh, that feeling of hunger, you know, particularly you know, we only eat in the in the morning uh, time, afternoon, evening, early morning we don't eat, so it's quite natural for us to have feelings of hunger from time to time. And you can, yeah, you know, sometimes in the morning meditation you can really feel your stomach growling, like, oh, I'm really hungry. When's breakfast? Um, and then in that moment there, there's an absence of food, <laughs> but then the feeling goes, the 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 wave of hunger departs, and then. Really, if you look at it closely, really allow that into the heart. You recognise, oh, well, uh, it's is anything missing? You know, is the universe lacking anything right now? Uh, 
And you realize, no, how could it? It's, it's, not, it's not the case. And so um, if you can uh, appreciate that, then that undercuts the whole uh, tanha, upadana, bhava process, the whole craving process, because the mind is, is not believing that you know, something is intrinsically missing. And if you kind of had it, quote-unquote, then you would be happy. It's just recognizing in this moment there's this particular feeling of hunger <laughs> or of restlessness or, uh, or whatever, it might, uh, whatever it might be. That's what's here in this moment. The, 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 the desire is telling you something's missing, but it, it isn't. It can't be in any absolute and, and real way. So that... Uh, I feel is a um, a very important insight, very simple, very straightforward, but incredibly helpful. Because when the uh, when we, we we see it in that direct and clear way, then we realise. Well, I tell myself I always like this, or I always want that, or that this is uh, this is good. But that's just a way of thinking. That's just a pattern of thought. That's just a way of speaking. Like if you're if you're ill, if you if you have a, um, some kind of upset stomach or you're feeling nauseous, then uh, the the meal time comes around and you're you're not the slightest bit interested in eating because your whole system is going. Ooh, I feel sick. So food is completely uninteresting at that point. Whereas on an ordinary day, when the the system is operating as it usually does, then comes around to breakfast time or the or the meal time, and oh, yeah, food is attractive and interesting. But if you if the body is is uh, is sick, if there's nausea, then the food is not interesting. It's not attractive. It, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's not something that you always want, or something that is always good. It's not something that you always like. So it's uh, it's helpful in this respect to be uh, attentive to the stories that we tell ourselves. We say, I, I like this, or this is good, or that's bad. And we tell ourselves these stories, particularly about our own character. This is good about me, or I'm proud of this, or I'm embarrassed, uh, I'm embarrassed about this aspect of me, or I, I, uh, I'm really you know, uh, in, uh, incapable, or I'm not, uh, I'm not you know, very strong, or I'm not very good at that. Uh, and that there may be a, a relative truth to that, but just by telling ourselves the story... <laughs> We we kind of make the, the the world a very narrow place. We we limit the range of possibilities just because of the stories we tell ourselves. I can't do that. I never I, I never do that. That's just not me. That's just not me. I never do that. You know, I can't do that. And so I, I don't. Over the years, I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of people <laughs> I've uh, given this advice to, including myself. You know, that uh, if you have that kind of um, moment of recognizing a pattern of thinking like why do i tell myself that why do i think that's true who says that's true i say i can't do that why do i say why do i believe that who says that's true where is it written down that i can't uh, i can't do that or that's something that i have to have who who says (laughs) where where is it written down why why does the mind believe that and over and over again if that is reflected upon those kind of stories how we define ourselves, what we can do, what we can't do, what we're like, what we're not like. Um, if that's challenged on a basis of mindfulness and wisdom, there's a, that kind of investigation, that Dhamma Vijaya, wise reflection, Yoni So Manasikara, then 
uh, more more often than not, most of the time, at least, and certainly from, from my mind and most of the people I've given this kind of advice to in the past, as a at least for a moment, as a recognition of, oh, why do I believe that? <laughs> yeah, why do why do I say that it, that's true? Um, and I was telling somebody the story of this um, a couple of days ago, where um, actually why I'm here <laughs> physically, why why I live here at Amravati was because um, Lumpur Sumedha was was um, had been living here for 25 years, and uh, he was in his early 70s, and uh, he was really getting to the point where he was tired of the role of of being abbot and having to lead things and organize things all the time, and. Uh, and so he said, when he when I, he'd, he'd invited me and we were talking about it after I got here, it was during the, the summer of 2010, and he said, about a year ago, so June or July of 2009, he was sitting in his kuti and he was thinking about this and, and how, he said, well, I've, I've just got to be here until I die. I mean, I've, there's, there's no other possibility. I've just got to be the, the abbot of Amravati until I, I breathe my last. There's, there's no other no other way forward. There's nothing else I can do. I just have to be here, even if I just can't get really interested in the same way about community dynamics or the kind of the 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 um, daily uh, activities of leading the community. It's just not so uh, engaging. I just really have to work so hard to to try and kind of get interested and engage in the way that I, that I used to. But I, I have to. There's 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 no other possibility. And he was he was describing this 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 is a paraphrase or a, a rough version of what he was uh, describing to me, and he said so somewhere around June or July of two thousand and nine, this little voice appeared in his mind and said, "Sumato, why do you always tell yourself that? You keep saying there's no other possibility. You have to be abbot of Amravati till you die. Who says? <laughs> why do you think? Why do you think that's true?" And, it, and the, uh, even someone as wise and uh, you know, spiritually advanced as Lumpur Sumedha you know, would, would, uh, would be believing a, 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 an inner narrative like that. And, and he suddenly hit him like, yeah, why do I believe that? <laughs> why do I think it, it has to be that way? And then ding. And so then I, a few months later, I got the invitation to come here. So that's why I'm here. It was because of that exact process. I'm not trying to be critical of Lumpur Sumedha. I mean, it's, it's the same for, for all of us. We, uh, we unconsciously um, believe the stories that we tell ourselves. And maybe we've, telling, we've been telling them for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So it's natural that we, we go along with them. We don't challenge them. But a little reflective wisdom, just taking a step back and asking why do I say it has to be this way? Why, why do I say that that's not possible? Or why do I uh, feel like I've got to do this or I can't do that? And it's, a, it's an interesting process to me. It doesn't take a lot of effort, but it's a very particular effort, like putting a key in a lock. It has to be the right key <laughs> to put it in the right way. But if you do, then you can unlock a door that's been, been locked. So that, that kind of... Um, uh, exploration, investigation can be so helpful, and uh, it's kind of simultaneously liberating and embarrassing. That <laughs> how long have I been carrying that around? <laughs> yeah. uh, did I did I really just put that that barrier in front of myself and then uh, and then assumed I had to to sort of stand behind it forever? Uh, why did I put it there? Why do I believe I can't go through that barrier or can't walk around it? Yeah. Oh. 
It's interesting. So I do encourage that kind of uh, examination uh, and wise reflection on the, the way that we, we create who and what we are and to realize that, that there's no script. <laughs> you, can, you can rewrite the, the story of your, your life and what you can do, what you can't do. And, and uh, uh, so many of the limitations that, are, that we meet uh, are based on just random thoughts and beliefs and conditioning and or th comments that other people have made to us yeah the uh, just the sort of the flow of circumstance in our life and uh, just a, a little bit of, of wise reflection or like the buddha himself you know the the, the for the buddha's enlightenment you know, why do i believe that the uh, the experience of pain is intrinsically liberating you know, this is the limit that feeling can go to. Uh, I'm a, a very vigorous ascetic. You know, I've pushed my body to the limit. You can't feel more pain than this. And, and I'm, I'm, uh, I've been working with this for a long time. And uh, the, this experience of pain on its own is not liberating. Why do I believe that painful feeling is intrinsically virtuous or liberating? And so even though even the Buddha, it took him a long time at least six years of austere practices to get to the point where, oh, why do I tell myself that? <laughs> Who says that's true? And then he, he uh, decided to start eating and had some rice porridge and uh, let his body build up its strength. And he was going against the beliefs of the, and, and the customs of the fellow summoners that he was with. But still, it was exactly that kind of, well, <laughs> who says this is true? Why do we believe this? Yeah, something something isn't right here, and then that led to his insight into to the middle way. Or that, the particularly uh, when he had that that thought, he was exploring it in that way, and he uh, and he thought, well, when I was a young child and I was sitting under that rose apple tree, and you know my father was engaged in some ceremony or some activity, and my mind went very quiet. It was very peaceful, and very focused. So my mind was was concentrated. It was, there wasn't anything unwholesome, but it was really pleasant. Why should I be afraid of pleasure that has nothing unwholesome associated with it? Ding! <laughs> he realized there's no need to be afraid. Where his, the ethic of his, his group, the sort of wandering ascetics, is that if it's pleasant, then it's destructive. You know, that pleasure is bad, and that it's only by experiencing pain that you build up tapas, the sort of spiritual heat, spiritual strength, and that any kind of pleasure, any kind of pleasant feeling is intrinsically harmful or indulgent. But he had this memory of being a little child, seven, seven years old or so, and his mind naturally went into a concentrated state of jhana, peaceful, quiet, really enjoyable. <laughs> oh, a quiet mind. And he saw that had nothing to do with anything unwholesome. And he was ready to, uh, and able to trust that insight. And so, um, yeah, it, uh, it's a, a very powerful and liberating process, but uh, it, it takes that effort to recognize the, the habits that we have, the, the stories we tell ourselves, and to uh, examine that, and then to act upon the, the, the insight that arises, and to, to, uh, to find that, yeah, the world is, is indeed a, a bigger place than we, than we realized. So to continue, bhavatanha is the desire to become. It's to do with wanting to become something. As we do not ultimately know who we are, our desire is to attain and achieve 
and become something. In this holy life, the bhavatana can be very strong. You feel you are here to attain and achieve enlightenment. It all sounds very good, but even the, desi the desire to become enlightened can come from this avijja, from self-view. I'm going to get enlightened. I'm going to become the first American arahant. I'm fed up with this world. I want to get enlightened so that I'll not have to be reborn again. I don't want to go through childhood again. I don't want any of that. I want to become someone who doesn't have to be born anymore. That can be bhavatanha vi bhavatanha. They go hand in hand. In order to become something, you have to get rid of things you don't like and don't want. I'm going to get rid of my defilements and I don't want to get and I want to get rid of my bad habits and get rid of my desires. All this sounds very righteous too. The defilements are bad. Get rid of them. So in the holy life, there's a lot of vibhava tanha. We can live this life solely to get rid of things and to become something by getting rid of something. Notice then that the second noble truth is the realization that desire should be let go of should be laid down. It's not a rejection of desire, but an understanding. You let it go. Because otherwise, it's vibhavatanha, the desire to get rid of desire. Know it, see it, but don't make anything out of it. If you're coming from ignorance, your desire says, I want to become an enlightened being, and I shouldn't think like that. Sorry, I want to become an enlightened being, and I shouldn't think like that. I shouldn't have the desire to become a Buddha. I shouldn't want to become anything. All that can be from ignorance, conditioning mental formations, avicca, pachaya, sankhara. The insight knowledge then is, desire should be let go of. To say, we shouldn't be attached to anything, quote-unquote, all sounds very right, but that too can be coming from avicca, pachaya, sankhara. I shouldn't be attached to anything, quote-unquote. It's very much an affirmation of myself as somebody who is attached to something and shouldn't be that way who should be otherwise. So that's just a trap of the mind, not a real insight into karma-tanna, pavatanna, vipavatanna. Reflect on what attachment is. If in fact you're just throwing things away, that's not the way to solve this problem. You're not really examining karma-tanna, bhavatanna, vipavatanna, so you won't have an insight into letting go. You'll merely take a position against attachment, which is another kind of attachment. So examine Look into attachment. This is working in a much more subtle and realistic way than just forming an opinion that you shouldn't be attached to anything. So any thoughts, questions, clarifications? Yes, Venerable, please. So I have a question about pleasure and pain. And I was uh, wondering whether they are subjective, whether, um, you know, something is just an, an intense uh, physical sensation and whether it's absolutely painful or could it be perceived as pleasurable? I'm thinking like sometimes, let's say you've got, you're having a massage it's still like pain, but it's quite enjoyable. <laughs> or eating a chili. <laughs> yes, well, that, uh, yeah, in many of Ajahn Chah's Dhamma talks, there's uh, chilies appear. <laughs> there's a lot of food in his Dhamma talks. But he, uh, he talks about you know, the eating these really hot chilies and that your nose is running, your eyes are running, and you like, say, oh, these are so good. <laughs> Everything is pouring. But it's, uh, 
So, uh, yeah, the, uh, I, I would say that none of those conditions are completely, uh, they're not absolutely pleasurable or painful there. It's a sort of neurological reaction. Um, and so that um, there, there, mix, there can be a mixture of pleasure and painful feeling. I think in terms of, of Abhidhamma, uh, the way it's described as the actual functioning is that you can't have a moment of pleasure and a moment of pain uh, at the same time, but they go very quickly from one to the other. So each, uh, in each mind moment, you, you, know, you have 64 mind moments in a finger snap so that you, know, you can go from, have a mixture of pleasure and pain sort of following quickly along with each other so that it feels like a mixture of both. But um, uh, uh, I would say it's, um, uh, say the, the mind is generally experiencing a, a blend of, uh, of those. Or that this is not entirely pleasurable or entirely painful, but it'll be sort of um, veering towards the the extremes of that. So the um, and, and there also that uh, pain is actually, uh, if uh, if I understand it correctly, is a more primordial sense than pleasure, and that um, because it's like a, a, just on a neurological level. The, the the sort of development of the nervous system in its most rudimentary form it, it registers pain because it's sort of the danger to the body even a kind of very very small sort of microscopic creatures or zooplankton type creatures they they register pain because that's in a way more important preservation of the body and the danger to the body you can go without food or you can go without um, the kind of uh, qualities of comfort that's not so threatening, um, but pain means damage is being done or you know, there's a threat to life so that uh, pain is a bit more of a primordial sense than, than the different kinds of pleasure. And I think also in terms of the way our, our, our nervous system and our brains work, that um, the, the pathways to pain are much, much more simple and direct than the pathways of, of pleasure and, and they are... are um, more uh, say instinctual i mean it's it's a uh, also is things again vary from one person to another but um that uh, i would say that for in response to your question that most of us are experiencing a blend of those when something's when something's painful there can be a pleasure in it when something's pleasurable there can be a painfulness in it do you see what i mean I, was, I guess what I was wondering is, you know, because there's the uh, the first dart and the second dart, so you can mm -hmm. remove the um, the second dart, which is the uh, the wanting the pain to change, but you can't actually um, stop a painful feeling. And I was wondering whether, you know, equanimity could be such that it's just, you know, it's just it's really not even felt as painful. But would it still be felt as painful? But you just don't make a problem out of it. Yeah, it's still painful. I think uh, the, in terms of equanimity, or, or or like the the Buddha describes when he's when he's very old, he says, "My body is like an old cart held together with straps and strings." And uh, he said, "The only way I can experience comfort is to completely absorb the mind into the into emptiness." So the only way, if he was paying attention to the sensory field. 
and not just absorbed completely into the sort of sunyata vihara, it, the dominant experience was pain, because his body was just the, there was just so much you know aches and pains and damage to his body over the years. That was what he felt was was an ongoing experience of pain. But he knew it's so it's painful, and he makes that comment that uh, it's painful. But he doesn't make any suffering, doesn't make, make a problem out of it, doesn't build any suffering around it. But um, so I think that uh, it's that with with respect to the second arrow, it can be that yes, something is painful, but the mind is not making a problem out of it. It's not waiting for it to be over. It's the pain is still there, um, but it's not adding anything to it. And then as a counterpart, it's doing the same with pleasure, that. The, um, you can be experiencing a, a, a feeling of intense pleasure and again the mind isn't getting drunk on it or carried away with it or wanting more of it or, or trying to keep it or, or feeling proud of it. It's just, this is really, this is really pleasant. But uh, the, the way I was hearing your, your comment before is that it's like you, know, you have a massage and things are, are knotted up and you, yeah, it's really painful what the masseur is doing but it's like, oh, oh. There's <laughs> a kind of uh, a profoundly relaxing quality to it as well, but also at the other end of the scale, you know, you have there's a, a, a wonderful word in Japan. Have got any Japanese people? No, no Japanese people here today. There's um... oh, <laughs> yeah. So there's a word aware, aware. You know, it's spelt. It's transliterated like the word aware but it means the painfulness of beauty. So when people talk about the, uh, the cherry blossoms in the springtime, that they're so beautiful, it's painful. But when they're exactly at that moment. What's, what's the correct pronunciation for that? Yeah, I, I understood it was a Japanese word. Maybe it's a completely bad pronunciation. It's a folk etymology, but anyhow, it, whether it exists in Japanese or not, it, uh, I think that it, you can experience that. That something is so beautiful, it's painful because you know that it can't be kept. It's so transient, and that the um, and so that uh, <coughs> the um, uh, the practice of dhamma is. To letting the world of feeling and perception, uh, leaving it alone, not adding anything to it, and then uh, when it's ex uh, it's experienced in its simplicity and clarity, there's a a, a delight and enjoy a, a kind of a a, um, uh, a kind of um, balance there because the mind isn't finding fault with it or feeling it shouldn't be this way or not trying to get away from it. But uh, it, there's a, um, a a naturalness and a, 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 a balance there that is even with a painful feeling. It's like, well, here it is. <laughs> this isn't going anywhere. And so, even though it's still painful, that you can you you can not be burdened by that. That makes sense. Okay. So, so to continue. I remember a psychiatrist who lived in Bangkok who used to take somebody's wristwatch. The person would get upset and he'd say, you're attached to your wristwatch. Then he would take his own watch and throw it away to prove he was not attached. 
He was bragging about this to me. I said, you've missed the point. You're attached to the view that you're not attached to your wristwatch. Throwing the watch away like that, like a smart aleck, it's like being kind of too clever, for, too clever for your own good, a smart aleck. Throwing your watch away like a smart aleck and saying, you're attached, I'm not, I threw mine away. That wasn't letting go. There was a lot of self in it. Look at me, I'm not attached to these wretched material things. You can be quite proud of being non-attached. With reflection we see attachment, and we don't have to get rid of things, but we can be not attached to them. We can let go of them, not by throwing them out, but by understanding the suffering from being attached. So I'm not sure who that psychiatrist was that Lumpur knew <laughs> back in those days, but uh, you do come across that where um, people are very proud of their, 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 uh, proud of their renunciation or proud of their non-attachment. And um, that, uh, you know, it, but it's, it's building up a, a sense of self around what's supposed to, you know, in, in a way is a, a gesture of renunciation or, or non-attachment. But you're, uh, you're sort of letting go of the wristwatch, but you're building a, a lot of conceit and uh, inflated ego um, uh, around that. So that it's one of those deceptive defilements. It looks like asceticism or it looks like renunciation. But actually, you're saying, "Look at me! I'm, you know, I'm so poor. <laughs> I've got the, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to give up everything, and, and I'm ready to let you know about it too." As you understand the peace of non-attachment, of letting go, the second noble truth leads to the third. When you let go of something, you're aware there is no attachment to the five khandhas. There's awareness that desire has been let go of then the insight into the third noble truth of cessation arises. There is cessation. Cessation should be realized. As we realize cessation more and more, we begin to notice non-attachment. Not many of you are aware of non-attachment. You are usually conscious through being attached to things. A totally deluded human being only feels alive through attachment and desire. Contemplate that when you're not caught up in attachment to the five khandhas, you don't feel alive. You're nobody. Having neurotic problems makes people feel interesting and alive. I have fascinating neuroses from all kinds of traumas in early childhood. So it's not Somato the urinator, it's Somato the interesting neurotic, some, uh, the mystic or Somato the abbot. These are conditions to which we can be attached. But realizing cessation allows you to, to let the self cease. There's letting go. The realization of letting go is cessation, that whatever arises ceases, and cessation is noted. Cessation should be realized. So in that uh, analysis of the, the Four Noble Truths and the, the, the three aspects, so with letting go, um, the, the second Noble Truth is the truth of uh, craving is the cause of, of suffering, and then pahatabanti, <clears throat> it should be let go of, and then pahinanti, it has been let go of. Uh, then with uh, the third noble truth, um, dukkha nirodha, the cessation of suffering, uh, cessation should be realized, sachikata bhanti is the Pali, and then sachikatanti means it has been realized. And uh, this point that Lumpur is making here is that uh, often, yeah, we, we feel alive through attachment and desire, and it's not, it's also aversion, you know, sometimes it's not just through having things or um, being being busy it's not just through attachment to to well, you know, wealth or status or clothing or 
your um, seniority as a monastic, <laughs> it can also be aversion. You can you can feel alive through all the people that you complain about and you criticize, all the things that are wrong with the government or your family. You know, that it's very common to just be um, get, divide, de deriving your sense of being out of all the people that, that you're opposed to and you criticize. Uh, and I remember. When I, uh, uh, I was living at Abayagiri in um, uh, the early years there in, in, the, in the 90s in California, one of the, um, uh, someone who was interested to become a, 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 an Anagarika novice with us, he was traveling around to di uh, different monasteries in the States and sort of choosing which place he was going to train and um, visited a few different, uh, different places. And, uh, and he was saying, he was speaking quite respectfully, but he went to this one particular monastery and, uh, <clears throat> and you know, the, the abbot there had a, a good reputation as a, a meditation teacher and was a very, very strict, had a you know, scrupulous standard of, of vinaya and so forth. But uh, when this, this young man was, was staying with him and was there for, for a few days or a week or two, um, and, and, you know, uh, one of the... the uh, uh, notable characteristics of the American um, personality is being generally very, very straightforward. Like people often very easily tell you what's on their mind, and so um, which is very un-English. Un <laughs> Growing up, in, particularly in Southeast England, uh, the, the you know we we never let on what's going on inside. You know, the kind of people who get into the same train carriage with somebody for twenty years, and all you ever say is morning. <laughs> <laughs> or you work at the next next desk in the same office and say morning, you know, and uh, happy Christmas once a year, and that's it. You know. In America, the people are very much ready to. Uh, it's kind of wonderful and a marvelous uh, contrast to the, the the stiff upper lip of the English. And uh, so, in this this fellow was telling me how he'd been in this monastery, and, and more as a kind of observation, he said. You know, I, I, this is a very wonderful monastery, and I, I really um, enjoy your teachings. But do you realize that whenever you talk about other people, all you do is criticize? I said, so I've been here for a week, and you've never mentioned any other human being without telling me what's, what's wrong with them. So do you realize that you do that? And <laughs> I think he didn't mean it as an insult. But it's just like an observation. It's like, are you aware that whenever you talk about people, all you do is criticize and complain? It's kind of astonishing. Um, do, you, do you see anybody that's worthy of praise? And he said he had to think for a moment. <laughs> but um, he did come up with one or two people that he could, he, uh, he could speak positively of. But um, that, uh, that's the kind of habit we can get into. Um, or that uh, you, you feel like you've got, to, you've got to be excited about something, you've got to be interested in something. Again, living in the States for a long time, being excited uh, was taken as a, a, an, an automatic and intrinsic good. So that to say something, um, to approve of something, you'd say, that's exciting. Or, that's, or, or if you're disapproving, that's not exciting. That to be excited is somehow taken as, yes, that's a sign of, of being alive, truly alive, and you're, you're with things. Um, and so that um, the sense of not, uh, uh, see, being upset, being excited, being uh, uh, attached and, and filled with opinions or, or um, wanting things, we can feel that we're, we're not really alive. We can, we can, uh, it can come across as a kind of... Um, 
a, a dullness or a numbness, and that uh, that sense of of cessation of dukkha can be like, well, that doesn't sound very interesting. It's not interesting, <laughs> not exciting, uh, and that uh, we can say find ourselves pulled uh, away from that quality of peacefulness just to be uh, feeling like we're alive and that uh, it's something that triggers those instinctual reactions uh, and kind of anything will do to have a, uh, a, a an opinion to have a plan to have a, a memory uh, a regret something that you feel guilty about uh, something that you're looking forward to, someone that you're upset about, someone that you're in love with, um, yeah, somewhere where you want to be where you're not yet, or somewhere you used to be and how great it was, that the the mind will take any kind of object and have a, a, a relationship to it, positive, negative, of any kind, anything will do. <laughs> and and in the meditation you can you can see how this uh, how this works. Sometimes sitting uh, watching the mind, seeing it just trying to chase after yeah, a sexual fantasy, and then a regret, and then a plan, and then a, 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 a sweet memory, uh, and then an opinion, and just it's like um, searching through the the the, uh, the boxes in the attic, looking for <laughs> looking for for something, anything that'll uh, that'll be uh, uh, an excuse to engage and to give a sense of being, a, a quality of. Of defined identity, and and that's it's to me that's really interesting because anything will do. Sometimes, yeah, uh, when you're letting go, letting go, letting go, and then the 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 mind is seeing through. Oh, that there's that's not worth chasing after. That's not worth uh, worrying about. That's not uh, that's not really a problem. And it's just looking for a thing to be, and uh, and anything will do so something that might seem to be quite painful like remembering some way that you you broke your mother's heart when you were a, a teenager or something that um you you had broke the law and got kicked out of a job or you uh you, you acted in some kind of impulsive way and shouted at somebody and and that uh, you, that was so painful it broke the friendship up forever and that you can, even though it's a painful memory, I really, you know, it's really awful. I made my mother cry, or I got upset with that person, and the friendship broke. There, even at the at the moment that the mind takes hold of that painful memory or that, that kind of uncomfortable feeling, something in the jitter goes, "Yes, <laughs> I am to blame. Yeah, I have got a problem. Yes, great. Yeah, you know, you've got an excuse to be something, and so that uh, the." Uh, that um, that kind of defined identity—that's the, in a way, the 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 kind of core of bhavatanha, the desire to become, the desire to be. It's like the urge for defined being. Um, and uh, one of the when I was living in in California, one of the bumper stickers that um, you would see from time to time in San Francisco area was, um, <coughs> yeah. Why should I be peaceful and complete when I can be a brilliant wounded fragment? So <laughs> far more interesting to be a sort of brilliant wounded fragment than just being peaceful and happy. That's kind of boring. That's not very... And feeling you know, whole. It's like, well, what, what, what else is there to, to, to do or to get? And far more charming, like, like Lumpur says here, Sumato the interesting neurotic. <laughs> that... Uh, so that realization of dukkha niroda 
is uh, is one of the maybe it's the most challenging of all of the the tasks of the four noble truths to open the heart to the ending of suffering to that that freedom from grasping and to to let that not be felt and appreciated in the context of I want to be interested, excited, I want to be something, but to let the heart fully open to that, that spacious, peaceful quality. And then what happens is when there is that sachikatabhanti, that is to be realized, sachikatanti has been realized, there's a kind of inner blossoming, an inner brightness that, uh, that is present, that the heart awakens to Dhamma itself, to embodies Dhamma. And so that there's a, a kind of luminosity, a, a radiance, a brightness of the heart that, uh, that is realized, is known when, when the attention is really given to that quality of spaciousness, silence, stillness, when the, the thing comes to an end, when the dukkha ceases, when the grasping stops, the the instinct is when the grasping stops as a few seconds of ah thank goodness that's over and then okay what's next and we start hunting for another interesting thing to to be or to do to have but if instead of hunting for the next thing there's just a a staying still being open attending and then that that moment that the present moment is not just experienced as a uh, the the absence of that painful thing or that that thing that just stopped or just got let go of, but rather the heart opens to that the the quality of dhamma, the timeless, ever present, uh, fundamental reality of dhamma itself, which is not a thing but is ever present, and so that the uh, it, the attention is not grabbed by space and silence and stillness, but if we have that patience to, to stop, to, to be open, to really acknowledge that for the Satchikatanti, for that that uh, Dukkha Niroda to be fully realized, then it's not just a, an absence of pain, but there's a, the, the embodiment of Dhamma itself. So it has a, a whole different quality. So our practice is one of realizing cessation. That is when we talk about emptiness. We realize the empty mind where there is no self. There's no sense of the mind being anybody. As soon as you think of it as my mind, if you grasp that thought, you're deluded again. But even if you have my mind, quote unquote, and see it as that which arises and ceases with non-grasping of it, then it's just a condition. There is no suffering from that. It's peaceful. When there's no self, there is peace. When there are me and mine, there's no peace. When you let go, there is cessation of me and mine. There's peace, calm, clarity, dispassion, emptiness. I observe that when there is no self, no attachment, the way of relating to others is through the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes. Metta, kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upeka, serenity. These are not from a self or avicca. It's not that there's an idea that I must have more metta for everyone because I got a lot of aversion and I shouldn't. I should have loving kindness for all beings. I should feel compassion. Sometimes I just want to kill everybody. I should feel a lot of metta, mudita, be kind and joyful and sympathetic with people. I should be serene too. 
from a selfish person's point of view, the, the Brahma Viharas are From a selfish person's point of view, the Brahma Viharas are not the real practice. The desire to become someone who has a lot of metta and karuna and all that kind of thing is still bhava tanha. But as the illusions of self fall away, this is a natural way to relate. You do not become a vacuous zombie through understanding Dhamma. You still relate to each other, but through kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and serenity, rather than through greed, hatred and delusion. So that, uh, uh, I feel this is a, uh, a very um, helpful and significant point, is that when, uh, when we, uh, we let go, realize cessation, it can come across as like sort of switching off or disconnecting or um, you know, and talk about non-attachment. So as, uh, as Lumpur says, it doesn't mean that you're a vacuous zombie. <laughs> you don't become a vacuous zombie through understanding the Dhamma. Like, yeah. Everything is empty and... And so, kind of dissociated or, or abstracted from the this, the sense world, but there uh, there's an attunement, there's a, a natural relatedness. So, as he says, when there when there's no self, there's no attachment. Then the the way that we relate with other beings is through the Brahma Viharas. That's the what they can call what you can call um, sort of uh, skillful emotions or, or um, liberated emotions. Or liberative emotions. The the emotional nature, based on non-attachment, takes shape as metta karuna mudita upeka. That's that's the way we relate with each other. So that um, you know, we speak about the Buddha and the enlightened nuns and monks as you know, having a lot of compassion, a lot of kindness, and and so forth. That uh, that's the motivating emotions uh, when the heart is free of greed, hatred, and delusion. So, uh, but as he says here, it's not like you know, the, there's a kind of calculation. I haven't got enough meta. I should have more meta, or, or I shouldn't have meta here. I should have compassion. Compassion is the appropriate thing. It's not like a, a kind of decision process, but uh, in a natural responsivity to the time, the place, the situation, what's what's needed in any one moment. That's what uh, guides what uh, what arises, and the. Uh, so that from the outside it, it can be said, oh, this person is a very compassionate person, or, or you know, she is, she has a lot of loving kindness. So from the outside it looks like a person who is practicing loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy, serenity. But from the inside there is not a person doing anything. And as Lumpur puts it here, there is no sense of the mind being anybody. As soon as you think of it as my mind, if you grasp that thought, you're deluded again. But if you uh, <coughs> so that. Uh, as I often say, you know, the mind is not a person. You know, the mind is dhamma. It's it's not a person. It it knows the personal qualities like the body and speech and thoughts and and feelings. It knows the personal qualities arising and ceasing. But the, the jitta in and of itself it is not a it's not a person. It's not a, a personal quality. Um, and as Lumpur says here, you know, there's no sense of the mind being being anybody. Uh, if you have, uh, but even if you have my mind and see it as that which arises and ceases, so that uh, when there's clarity, there's still thoughts and sensations and seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and so just using ordinary figures of speech, you can say my mind or my body or my name and and my age and so on. You know, those 
personal qualities can be referred to, but the, the mind isn't uh, attaching to those or, or seeing those as any kind of solid, absolute uh, identity. Like Lumpur was saying about about the aging process, you can say, you know, I, I am getting older. So, well, the, the, if there isn't an attachment to the body, the body's getting older, but that which knows the body doesn't have an age. It's it, it's uh, it's timeless. It doesn't enter into that time-bound condition. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes. Um, yes, Ajahn. I had a question about what you were saying when the mind is chasing after different, um, very different sometimes stimuli when, mm -hmm. um, uh, in different ways. Um, and this idea of being caught in the momentum of or like a whirlpool of just chasing after things and how sometimes um, one can, like if one prepares beforehand, like in meditation maybe there's the space to stop and look at this activity, but how sometimes the mind in day, daily activity, because there wasn't enough mindfulness and preparation, can go into this kind of chasing thing and, and go into... Um, See, it seems like it's trapped sometimes, and mm -hmm. it's very hard to. Maybe one notices, okay, I'm I'm in the middle of this thing, mm -hmm. uh, like with eating, for example, like uh, like like getting really excited about something, so, or in conversation, and how to um, get out then because it seems extremely difficult once one is in the middle of something to step out when there wasn't the preparation beforehand. Oh well, even if there was preparation. <laughs> It, it, well, it's rather like being on a bus or a train. You know, the the the, the vehicle is moving. You know, you, you you can't get off till you get to the next stop, and so the the whole thing is going along. But at this moment, there isn't the capacity to to step off it. And sometimes in meditation, it's like that. It's just the mind gets onto a a particular track, and it just goes. But you can know, like sitting on a bus. Uh, I'm on the bus, and this is this is the experience of being on the bus, and this is the effect of of having uh, climbed on board and this is the particular route it's following so this is what i see outside the windows so that what you can do with the practice is recognizing this is the view from the bus it's like this <laughs> so uh, uh, sometimes the mind gets onto those those uh, particular moods and uh, and uh, and it can be very instructive in a way because you know you can sit there for say 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, just say no, 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 and the mind is sort of desperately trying to pursue some kind of fantasy or, or uh, you know, a, a plan, you know, some project that you've got, and it's like, and you can just sit there going, no, 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 and it gets really stuck on this one particular track, and then, uh, I don't know what your, what your mind is like, but so, uh, so each time it's let go of, in that moment it's clear, like, no, that, that's nothing to get upset about, nothing to get excited about, just let it go. You're not really interested, but the momentum is there, like sitting on a train or a bus, zooming along. And so what happens is that uh, after a period of time, something goes, oh, well, that one's not working, let's try regret instead. And it just changes track altogether, so it's like the bus sort of takes, a, takes a detour. And that um, you've been sort of getting wrapped up in this this sort of plan for next week, and then and keep saying no, no, I'm not interested, not interested, no, 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 and then because it's not getting any 
any response there, the desire mind just takes a, a different uh, a different track altogether. Still just looking for some kind of object. So, uh, but even if it doesn't choose something different, just patiently sitting there saying, no, I'm not, no, not interested, no, let go, let go, let go. Just so that you can, you can sit on a bus and just watch the landscape go past the window. You don't have to make anything of it. It's just for whatever reason, like being in the middle of the meal, you know, it's just like, oh, it's the meal time and, and the body needs food. So here we go, you know, this is what's happening. And so there is a momentum there. But even if there's that momentum, there's still the, the mind that knows, oh, here is this compulsive feeling, it's like this. Here is the mind in this state of being caught up in this plan for next week or this regret about you know, last year. Or uh, That's what it's making, it's trying to invest in that, trying to make a story out of it. And just very patiently, calmly say, no, 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 no. And, and so that's how we don't create suffering. Yeah, because it's not, it's it, dukkha is not in the object. I mean, the the dukkha of the second arrow. It's not in the objects that we're experiencing. It's in the attitude towards it. So, like going to physical pain, as Tan Chittasangaro was asking about. You know, it can be a painful experience, like you had your your dodgy knee for for many weeks and months. You know, it's painful. <laughs> Just like. The, the mind keeps going to that painful feeling. Ow, 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 ow. It's still painful, but it, moment by moment, let go, let go, let go, let go. And the, the training is then not to be making anything out of it, moment by moment. So that when it's more of a personal story, it's not just a physical sensation or an event that's happening around you, but it's something that you are, got your it's got your name on it it's a responsibility or it's a memory from a particular choice that you made or a thing that happened to you and uh, so that it's got a lot more emotional loading then it's more more of a challenge but I, I don't know how many times over the years i've seen and particularly when you're in a really quiet retreat <laughs> there's really nothing going on and it's almost like the the mind is just desperate for something some kind of action Anything will do. It's like, it's like you know when you, uh, if you've if you've given up, if you're on a meditation retreat and you're not supposed to be reading anything, you find yourself fascinated by the ingredients in the toothpaste, you know, or reading that. Oh my goodness, elderflower in the herb. I, yeah, I thought there was some elderflower in there. Yes. Uh, oh, well, oh, rose hip too. Oh, very interesting. You know, it's kind of, you're reading the tea bags, you know. <laughs> Because there's nothing else to read, you know, so that the, the mind wants something to, to chew on, to, to give a sense of defined being. And so that that just being very, very patient and realizing, okay, well, the mind is just def desperate to engage with something. It's latched onto this memory or this plan or this mood or this criticism, this uh, obsession about a particular noise, you know. Um, Oh yeah, it can be something like trying to remember the name of a movie star. You know, what was the name of that actor in? That what was his name? And you can spend half a day trying to remember some actor's name, but no, you don't really care. It wasn't even a particularly impressive movie. But the mind says, "What was his name? What was his name?" Begins with a J or an M. Or was it N? <laughs> And you can you can literally spend the entire meditation period, as I can, sometimes just uh, 
trying to remember the name of an actor you don't really care about it wasn't in a particularly interesting movie but just what was his name and it's the, that sense of of engagement so part of the mind is watching this is ridiculous but it's this is a, a reflex a, a kind of a, a habit of the mind and you, you don't have to make a problem out of it you don't have to say oh i'm a stupid person why do i do this this is this is ridiculous i've got to stop this uh, just understanding how the mind works is like sometimes the conditions are such that it just needs to run and okay it wants to try and remember the name of a of a movie actor okay <laughs> you don't have to make any, don't have to make any suffering out of it and then the um the the process is understood that it's not the memory that you had or the plan that you've got is just seeing how that hungering for being that bhavatanha how that how that works and that uh, and exp at least that's how i've experienced that so it's never is the the <laughs> is it the case of the issue that the mind is latching onto that's never the real thing the real thing is just the sense of i the 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 me that is remember looking for this fact or, or remembering this event or or creating this sense of pride or or uh, regret or or hope or uh, irritation it's just the the defined being that is the drug of choice and and so that recognizing that process and seeing how it works that's how the jitta is really freed from addiction to that you understand it you think uh, and then it's not that uh, this is uh, a kind of total waste of time or is unskillful it's just that's a habit of the mind it's looking for defined being that's the the the, the drug of choice the bhavatanna it's like, and that this is like coming off the drug it's like you know if you've ever been addicted to things like caffeine or tobacco or alcohol there's the i want a drink or i need a cigarette or, <laughs> i want, I want want a cup of coffee this there's this kind of waves of feeling that, that come up and it's just in exactly the same way it's just that's the drug that the, the jitta is addicted to is the bhavatana the desire for defined being for, for most beings so i'll just finish this um this uh this chapter what do unselfish human beings generally manifest in society? You could explain metta, mudita, karuna, and upeka as energies that manifest through unselfish human beings. Then apply that to our own practice now. When there is vijja, knowing and seeing clearly, that gives full opportunity for the practice of kindness, compassion, and the rest. But it's not me, not mine, not sumato, the, the metta-filled ajahn, Sumato the good guy, rather than Sumato the urinator. As soon as Sumato delusions step aside and cease, kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and serenity can manifest. This is why the human state is a great blessing. When the self-view is relinquished, what remains is a great blessing. But it's not me. I am not a great blessing. All I can do in this conventional self is let go of delusion. Be mindful and not get attached to things. See clearly. That's what I can do. This is the practice of the Four Noble Truths and the development of the Eightfold Path. It amounts to being vigilant, 
mindful, seeing things clearly. Then what happens is up to other is up to other things. There's no need to go around trying to become Sumato the good guy anymore. Goodness can manifest through this form if there is no delusion. And that's not a personal achievement or an attainment at all, merely the way things are, the way it happens to be. It is Dhamma. <laughs>